All right then, and turn, and we are actually this morning in the book of Romans. We've been studying through the book of Exodus, and we were in Exodus 9 last week, but now we turn to Romans chapter 9. And we're looking at this text in particular because Paul the Apostle quotes Exodus 9 here in Romans chapter 9. And he gives some light uh, on how we should understand some of the challenging verses in the scenario that we've run through in Exodus. Namely, we've seen, how best to put it, God's favoritism. We've seen God's favor and love to His people Israel to deliver and save them. And that yet, conversely, we've also seen God's justice, His justice to harden Pharaoh's heart. And what do we make of this? And to that, we pose the question this morning as the title even of the sermon is, is salvation fair? Is salvation fair? Now, we all want fairness, I think, at least to some degree. It's how we are born coming out of the womb. We hear children cry out repeatedly, <laughs> depending on the situation. That's not fair. For example, it echoes out from the pool as the kid who is it in Marco Polo keeps opening his eyes to go tag somebody. By the way, that's against the rules. And so that means that's not fair. Or imagine this scenario, totally hypothetical, but the kind parent who's so cozy in his blanket watching the Christmas film gets up, unshields himself from the blanket and goes to find ice cream for the whole family watching around and dishes out bowls quite evenly, so he thought, and takes a bowl and gives it to each child, to them to enjoy unceasingly the, the joys of television. Anyway, and then you hear, he got more than me. That's not fair. Again, totally hypothetical. But it's not just kids, is it, who cry foul when things don't seem equal. What does your heart say? Is maybe you were passed over for a promotion to someone that was actually less deserving, at least so you thought, and you cry in your heart. That's not fair. Or another hypothetical situation. You're the one who gets pulled over for a speeding ticket, even though the black BMW ahead of you was going much faster. And so you want to say to the cop, that's not fair. We all want what's fair, to a point. When we've done wrong, however, few of us then are crying out for fairness or justice. When we're in the wrong, what do we want? We don't want what's fair. We want mercy. We don't want justice. And so we become rather selective about our fairness. It's all about fairness when we think we should get something good, something we've earned. However, when it comes to something bad, <laughs> let's throw fairness out the window. I want mercy instead. Okay, so which is it? Again, this title of the morning is, Is Salvation Fair? Well, what do you think? Is it? Do you want salvation to be fair? Part of this is prompted by our study from the book of Exodus. Again, we've seen God's favoritism to the Jews in saving them out of Egypt. And then, too, we've seen His hardening justice against Pharaoh. And we wonder, but God, is this fair? Is this right? Are you allowed to do that? And that's what takes us on our little diversion out of Exodus this morning to Romans chapter 9. For here in Romans 9, Paul addresses this question as directly as anywhere in Scripture. And furthermore, he goes to actually Exodus 9 to provide an answer or explanation there. So that's why we turn. Because in Romans 9, what we see here is Paul explores the doctrine of God's sovereignty. That God is entirely in control about who is saved and who isn't. 
That's God's sovereignty and salvation. That's what we're going to learn more about this morning from Romans chapter 9. And you might then ask as we study this, is this fair? And two, though, right behind it, you're going to wonder, well, do I want it to be fair? Either way, what you will find is that this is a most humbling doctrine. It really cuts you down at the knees, puts us on our face. But by the end, I trust you will see, and this is really Paul's more central point that he wants us to see, is that in the end, you wouldn't want it any other way. Why? Because note this, if God is in control, then salvation can actually be sure. Because it's not in your hands, but His. And that's the word this morning. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, it humbles us. It does cut you down because it's taken salvation out of your hands and it only rests in God's. And you might want to say, you might want to question, is that fair? But by the end, I think you will see, we cannot but question, but this is the only way that your salvation can be secure. Such that again, yes, it humbles you to see you were not able to be entrusted with this thing. But by the end, I think you will see, and I don't want to be. I'm so glad it's with you. As we look at this, I want you to see, this is what Paul wants us to see, that, that the doctrine of God's sovereignty, this is not a cold doctrine. This is not a pouring water on the flame of your faith doctrine. It's not an uninvolved doctrine, but it's a joyful one. It's one that causes Paul at the end of Romans 11 to just burst out in praise to the great wisdom and power of God. So that's my prayer for us as we look at the same text this morning. Because really to carry from the main theme of Romans 9, and that will address some of the questions we've had from Exodus, but this is really a, a defense of God's character, but so then the surety of salvation. So that's what we'll see is in these three ways how our salvation is sure. And we're going to look at verses 9 to 24, and let me say now, I just must confess, you know, as I started in the week and started writing out my manuscript and sermon and doing my study, I had great aspirations of getting through verse 24 for you. Uh, didn't happen. No way. Uh, there's far too much here, at least in the sense of even addressing our questions from Exodus. So, we're not going to cover uh, really all of it, especially the, the latter half and great depth, uh, but that's the way it is, and we'll be back in... Uh, Exodus in a couple weeks. We're going to be John 3.16 on Sunday next week. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this will get to those questions we're asking and really questions that come right out of this text. And it's to show, despite what you might think, it's God's sovereignty and salvation that assures us of our salvation. And in the first place, our salvation is sure because, number one, our salvation rests on God's promise, not our working or works or performance. God's sovereignty assures us that our salvation is sure because it rests on His promise, not our working. Our salvation rests on His promise, not our working, verses 6 to 13. Now, to set this up as we turn here in chapter 9, and we're, we're just parachuting in, right? Here we are in verse 6 of chapter 9, but I, I have to reset for you just, of course, rather briefly the context of where we've been in Romans, if we had been walking with Paul through this. And the most immediate context, of course, is the end of chapter 8. You know, I'm really clever that way. What's the context? We'll just go to the immediate chapter in the very end. 
And what you see at the end of Romans 8 is really the crescendo of Paul's explanation of the gospel and how sure it is because it rests on Christ. Look at this. You know this passage well. If you do not, you are in for a treat to, to hear really Paul glory in the surety of our salvation. Look at Romans 8 verses 38 and 39. He says, for I am sure, he's certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, or excuse me, the love of God. That's how it reads. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That God is then with us. But how can that be sure? Well, it's that last phrase there at the end of verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is what? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That Christ himself, by his death and resurrection, is the seal of the love of God. This is why we know his love is unwavering. Because God kept his word and he came to for us and bought us. In other words, the hope of eternal life, but in Christ it is sure unshakable. Another way to say it. God made promises to save His people and to make sure that was going to happen, He came and saved them Himself, coming as the God-man. God saves His people because He made promises to save them. That's good news. That's great news. And if that's what God can do in Christ, then we know salvation is sure. It's unwavering. It's unbreakable. God will save His people. Why? Because His Word is sure. He promised to fulfill it, and He did. But then, especially to the early church, the nagging question immediately rises. How does that work with Israel? Weren't they God's chosen people? Didn't they also get great promises from God? Wasn't God's Word still sure even to them? In other words, if God's word to Israel can fall, what about his word to us, Christ notwithstanding? That is, you're talking about how sure our salvation is in Christ, but is it really sure if I can take myself out of it like Israel did? Because in effect, that's what Israel had done, it seemed. God made great promises, they turned away from him, and they were rejected. despite all of the favors God had given them. And that's where actually he begins in chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Paul lists the the many blessings and privileges the people of Israel had. We look there in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. We hear about the adoption that they have as sons, the, the covenant relationship they have with God that was exclusive. They had the law of God. They had the worship of God. They had all of those promises. They had the glory of God's presence really dwelling among them. They were the favored people of God. There was no one like them. What made them distinct? God was with them. And despite all of, that, all of those privileges, if they can lose their salvation, what's to say I can't? If they could just rebel and so forfeit all of God's promises, is God's Word really all that sure then? Well, this is the issue that's 
prompted Paul to write what he does, really through all of Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, is to deal with this question. Is God's Word really sure? And he's even going to go eventually to Exodus chapter 9 to help answer that question as he deals with the issue of Pharaoh's hard heart. It's an explanation to prove, yes, God's saving Word is so sure, but that might prompt some questions as we think about this. And those questions really form the outline of our text this morning. Uh, The first question is an implied one in verse 6, has the Word of God fallen? The next question comes in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God on God's part? And then the last question, which again, I confess, we will only just glance at for an answer, but it's this, why does God still find fault for who can resist His will? But that really forms the outline, and in each time, Paul is giving back an answer to say, but that salvation in God alone is sure, because His Word is sure. Well, let's look at it then. Let's consider this first one, this first implied objection. Has God's Word actually fallen? Has it been broken? Will He save His people as He promised? And again, as I noted, it's not put as a question per se, it's an implied one, but here's the rising matter. Look at Romans 9 verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Again, though Israel got all of these privileges, though they had had these great promises from God, they rejected their Messiah. And yet, Paul says, it's not as though God's Word had failed. Paul, how do you figure that? How did your Word hold true? It seems like a bust. When the one people that you favored and chosen, they don't even love you or believe you. Something's amiss. Well, here's Paul's first clarification. And admittedly, it's still a bit enigmatic. Look at verse 6 in full. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Okay, Paul, how is that? Well, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What? (laughs) How does that work? Not all Israel is truly Israel, God's people? That is, there's a people within a people. That's how this works. And before we scoff too hard at the idea, well, how can there be a people within a people? But isn't that very much what it's like today with God's people? There are many that say, I'm a Christian, that claim the name of Christ. But are they? We have rampant, as in all of Christian history, really, nominal Christianity. We say we're a Christian in name, but only name only. That is, they don't truly believe, they haven't been converted, they haven't been changed by the gospel. And that was true in ancient Israel as well. Many had been born of the promised line, they'd received the signs of circumcision, but they were not converted, they did not truly actually believe in the promises. It just took all the appearance of so. And so Paul continues then, verse 7, drawing this out, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named, to quote, a promise. That is, it's not about being a physical descendant. It's about relating to the promise of God. Remember, Abraham He had a promised son, Isaac, and that was an unlikely son, wasn't it? I mean, it was a miracle baby. Why? Because 
he and Sarah were well past childbearing age when Isaac was born. But God had made a promise long before that, and it took a long time before that promise would come to pass. It took such a long time, it was hard for Abraham and Sarah to keep waiting. And so, before Isaac actually showed up, what did they do? Abraham and Sarah schemed away to try and get a baby through their own means. You might say, to use Paul's language, through their own works. So, they said, well, what if I give you my servant Hagar? And they, Abraham took her, and they had a baby. That was Ishmael. This was Abraham's really oldest firstborn son was Ishmael. But God said, no, 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 no. I haven't chosen him because I'm doing something that depends on me and my word, not you, your works, and your ingenuity. I will count your offspring. I will count your promised seed through the promised son, the miracle boy. Who's going to be Isaac? Such that Paul's going to conclude in verse 8 this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. He makes it so clear. It's not by what your flesh can do, can work, that makes you a child of God. It's not being born in the right family or being born in a Christian home. It means being born of the promise, that you are founded in the promise, and so then you believe in the promise. Hence, he goes on in verse 9, incites the very promise that was tied to Isaac's birth. That God had said when he appeared to Abraham, when I come by this time next year, your wife is going to have a son. Here's the point. God's true people are always grounded and built on the promise of God. And that was true from the very beginning. Such that it was never ultimately about who came from what family line, as much as it was always about who trusted and was founded upon the promise and word of God. And Paul continues to show that because the same can be said you had Abraham, and then you had Isaac, but it can be shown through Isaac's sons too, because Isaac had two sons. And what was so special about them to highlight that salvation rests on God and God's promise alone? It's because those two sons were twins. Isaac through Rebekah had twins. And get this, by the very promise and word of God, God determined ahead of time, before either of them were ever born, ever came out of the womb, God ordained and predetermined and said this, the older would actually serve and submit to the younger. God's promised word, you see, favored one over the other. The promise is actually recorded there in Romans 9 verse 12. Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. And this was culturally like shocking because this is not how things work in the ancient world. The oldest son was always the favored one, was always the one who got the family name, got the family wealth, got the family inheritance. That is, the younger sons would be the ones that submit to their older brother. Always. Not the other way around. And yet, God determined ahead of time to flip that on his head. To actually have the older brother Esau would indeed serve the younger brother Jacob. Now, why? 
Why did God do it this way? Why did God choose Jacob? Why was Jacob chosen over Esau? Well, verse 11 explores some of the reasons why. And again, it undermines all of our common assumptions. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, but that the election, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Why did God choose to favor Jacob, the younger over Esau, the older? Why? Well, it wasn't because one was better than the other at all. Jacob was not and would not, as you go back and read Genesis, which tells us all about Jacob, he's not going to endear himself to God with such a sterling moral life. He's actually called a cheater, a huckster, a doubter. And nor will Esau so disqualify himself by comparison because he's so, by comparison, particularly evil and cruel. No. Actually, as the twin story unfold in Genesis, they both come off pretty bad. Pretty undeserving. And so, besides that, that Jacob is over Esau was predetermined by God before any of that. Before they did anything, good or bad. And why? Why did God do it this way? Again, there in the middle of verse 11. In order that, here's why, God's purpose of election, of choice, of choosing might stand, continue. Be unwavering. God did it just this way. Why? To make sure His salvation plan happens. That's why. He did it just this way. Choosing one who had done no good or evil over another who had done no good or evil. Why? So everyone would know God's favor does not rest on any works, any performance, anything you do. It rests only on God. God's saving work does not depend on man making himself acceptable to God. As if you can work some kind of deal with God. Okay, God, let's do this. I'll go to church for a while, even on Christmas Day. I'll give some people some money, and then I'll get out of hell. Is this a deal? Is it going to work that way? No, it doesn't work that way at all. It works by but God's purpose to choose. He chose some, and they will assuredly be saved. Why? Because God promised. And they are not chosen or saved because they were so attractive to God. You're not chosen or saved because you have some great potential or because you have some pure heart. Why? Back to Jacob and Esau. It plays out. Nobody does. They are chosen and saved. Why? Because God chose them. They are, some are chosen and saved. Why? Because God chose to save them, period. And that way, you see, you contribute nothing to your salvation. That's why God's promise of salvation may be counterintuitive, but that's why it's so sure and reassuring. Because it doesn't rest on you, it rests on God. We'll talk more to that. But then immediately we have to 
of course, just go to that question. Well, but what about Esau? What about those who are not chosen? And Paul pulls those punches here. I mean, he goes right to a very challenging text right from Malachi to make the point. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that's the confirmation of that pre-birth choosing of Jacob over Esau, how it played out in their lives. And now we can throw objections at God. God, how can that be? God, how is this fair? And we'll continue to explore those questions. But just at this moment, I just want to pause and give you wisdom from Charles Spurgeon. When things get really tough in a sermon, that's where you go. You go to Spurgeon because he makes everything clearer. But he does make a great point. A woman once confessed to Charles Spurgeon in reading this text, I cannot understand why God would say that he hated Esau. And to this, Spurgeon replied, that's not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand, how could God love Jacob? And really, that should prove the humbling and recurring theme of Romans chapter 9. Not so much about, what of those who won't believe? What about those who weren't chosen? But, God, why would you ever set your love on me? Well, know this. The answer to that question was never, is never, you were so good. You were so much better than others. You were so smart. You were so spiritually sensitive, so sincere of faith, as if you can get to heaven and then say, yes, I'm thankful for Christ, but you did a good job in choosing me. That's not how this works. He gets all the glory. And in that, we get all the security. No, it should be, God, why did you set your love on me in Christ? And so we humbly thank Him. For if it's a love that rests on His electing choice, then it's something that is sure for an eternity. It rests on His unshakable promise. We also know that our salvation is sure because it rests on God's will, not our willing. Verses 14 to 18. Again, all of this just conjures up some of the most admittedly difficult theological questions, I think, in all the Bible. Is God really fair then? Is He just? And that's the very question. Paul knows you're going to ask it, and he asks it for you. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Because the point is, it sure seems like it. It doesn't seem fair. Now, he gives you the answer. You get to turn to the back of the book. By no means, he says. No, there is no injustice with God. But God, I don't understand. How does this work? How can God be sovereign and in control totally of salvation and then yet hold people entirely responsible? We'll return to that question. But what we see here is that above all, God chose some for salvation, true, and others not so, true, But why? But by the very purpose of His will, and that is all. In other words, it wasn't based on merit. It wasn't based on performance. He doesn't choose heaven for those who are generally better than other people. 
And nor does he pass over others, leaving them for hell because they are particularly worse sinners than others. And in that way, we look at that and we go, but then salvation doesn't seem very fair. In a similar way, maybe you have kids going into college soon. I do. <laughs> and so you're thinking about, hopefully, full-ride scholarships. That would be nice, right? And so you're applying in universities and thinking about these things. And then you find out there's some university giving out full-ride scholarships, except it's entirely at random. That it wasn't based on any merit or potential. It wasn't based on your SAT score or your GPA. It wasn't even based on the need or opportunity or demographics of the student. It was just, the school said so, and you don't know why. And so in a similar way, we want to go back to God, but God, that's not fair. That's not just. You didn't do me right, really. And to that accusation, Paul answers, has God been unjust? By no means. And to prove that answer, he's going to go back to the Bible, he's going to go to the book of Exodus, and he's going to bring before us two texts from Exodus to vindicate God's character. And the first is this humbling but marvelous word from Exodus chapter 33. Paul records it in verse 15, and it reads, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now this is spoken to Moses, to Israel in a time when they were in desperate need of mercy. I noted to you, it takes place in Exodus chapter 33. Do you remember what takes place in Exodus chapter 32? I grant, we haven't got there yet in Exodus, and in our study, we probably won't get there, Lord willing, for another few years. But nevertheless, maybe you've read it before ahead of time. Do you remember what happens in Exodus 32? It's the golden calf. God gave a law to His people. And the first two commands, only worship me and don't make idols. And so what do they do? Right out of the gate, they worship another God, and they make an idol of him. And for this, the law has been broken. Really, the relationship with God has been severed. And for this, God is ready, because of their high-handed rebellion against him, he's ready to just wipe them out. And that would be just. And understand, that's where we all sit before our Creator, justly condemned. We've disobeyed Him. He, he's worthy of our life, and yet we've taken it for ourselves. In other words, whether you realize it this morning or not, you too are in desperate need of His mercy. We all need it so badly. But here's the thing. In God's justice, He's not obligated to give you mercy. Really, by definition, because it's mercy. That's not something that can be earned. It's not something that can be deserved. Again, no one can ever say by their good deeds or sincerity of faith that they put God in their debt as if God owed you something. No, what God owes you is justice, and that means hell for your sins, honestly. But God in His sovereign mercy chooses to have compassion on some, to forgive their sins as Christ came and died for them. But then we ask, well, why does John Doe over here get mercy and average Joe Sinner over there get none? It all depends on God. Paul draws out the answer. Look at verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You cannot wish it enough. You cannot run after it hard enough as if you would want to. 
it's wholly up to God. You cannot reform or change enough, again, as if that were possible. It's wholly up to God. It's up to God to show mercy, and it all rests on Him. And again, for a moment, we feel like I think we're walking on a tightrope. And it's scary, the thought of falling off. But yet, there's a great reassurance here, brothers and sisters, and I trust you would see it. It's that salvation rests entirely on the will of God and not yours. And you're like, well, wait a minute. How is that reassuring? Just take a step back and think for a moment. What is your will and desires like? They're fickle. They shift. They change. We have the expression, I got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. You know, God in His choice for salvation never got up on the wrong side of the bed. He never regretted what He decided. In a silly example, to show how our desires change, I'll get up. I'm hungry. Ah, I know what I should do. Let's have some apples. They are so tasty and good and slightly nutritious. Let's go to the refrigerator. And then I open the refrigerator, and what do I see in there? Cheesecake. Mm. Suddenly, my desires change. They shift. And I go, cheesecake's much better. Give me the cheesecake. But it's true also just in the more serious aspects of our Christian life, isn't it? I can be on a Sunday morning before noon, a super pastor, super Christian, proclaiming boldly the glorious nature of our Christ. And then at 1.15 on the way home, I'm starting to get hangry after church, getting whining and miserable, thinking to myself, woe is me. I'm hungry, and -and so-and-so fell asleep in the sermon again. No looking. My will to believe, it's like it weakens. It weakens like an out-of-range Wi-Fi signal. And what does that mean? It means there's a lot of buffering in my Christian life. But thankfully, God's mercy to you doesn't depend on how strong your faith signal is. It doesn't matter if you got a 5G-equipped phone or the five points of Calvinism. It's His merciful will that overturns your unbelief. He overrules it. He causes you to be born again. And through that, He sustains your faith all the way to the very end until you see Him face to face. And you will get there on that day and you will not say, boy, you made a good choice. But you will ask, why did you choose? And the only answer He can say is, because I did. And that for my glory. What credit can you take for your salvation, Christian? Well, here's Paul again, verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Oh, that humbles us. It insults us. It insults our capabilities and abilities or capacities. It insults our pride, doesn't it? But gloriously, too, it means our salvation is sure. Because it doesn't rest on my feeble, floundering, fickle will, but on God's strong, purposed, unmoving will. Praise God for His mercy. So in the first place, back to Paul's argument, God is not unrighteous because He is not obligated to give any mercy. Instead, He promises to give it to whom He wills or wishes, and He's consistent. So He's totally righteous. That's on the good side. Then we flip the coin and we wonder, well, what about the other side of this coin? You know, kind of the dark side. 
And what about those who don't get mercy? And to show God's justice there too, this is where Paul goes to Exodus. And he looks at a familiar character from the Exodus story we've been studying, Pharaoh. And he actually quotes from what we studied last time. He quotes from Exodus chapter 9. Listen to it here, Romans 9, verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up, God says, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's a quote from Exodus 9, verse 16. And there, even directly to Pharaoh, the Lord's explaining why he has sustained Pharaoh in Pharaoh's hardened heart and his unbelief. Remember, Pharaoh's resistance to say to God's command, not going to do it. You want me to let God's people go? No way. And recall what the Lord had said right after this in Exodus 9. He says, understand, Pharaoh, I could have wiped you out in a second, but I didn't do that. Or imagine if Pharaoh had when Moses first came, God says, let his people go, and Pharaoh said, sure, you can have them. You know, we joked, that would have made the Scripture reading a lot shorter last Sunday. But God had another plan in mind, so He strengthened Pharaoh in his unbelief. Why? Well, I see it explained here. So that as God, Pharaoh's hardened heart, as we said last week, God is using Pharaoh's heart as like that black matte backdrop upon which He can set the jewel that is His power and His name, that you can see how marvelous He truly is. Again, for this purpose, He says, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I raised you up for this, God says, and He says, I did it. Such then, Paul cannot but conclude, because the logic is undeniable. Verse 18, so then... He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. So are you saying then that Pharaoh is just a mere pawn in God's scheme to honor His name and glorify His name? Well, I wouldn't say it like that, but yes, God is in total control even to harden Pharaoh's heart so he resists and rebels? Yes, but, but, and we've seen this played out over and over in Exodus. Pharaoh's not some innocent bystander, right? He's not just like innocently caught up in the tornado of God's will. He hardens his own heart. The text in Exodus says that repeatedly. The point is, Pharaoh gets precisely what he wants, and God gives him over to that even strengthens his resolve to rebel. But yes, the Lord is the one ultimately in total control, even over Pharaoh's hard heart. And then we ask, or we might dare ask, how is that fair? How is that still righteous or just of God? Well, using Exodus 9, as Paul does here, Paul's point seems to be this. But did you notice that even Pharaoh's hard heart led to a greater good thing to be accomplished in the end? Did you see that? Pharaoh's was a hard-hearted rebel 
But God used that hard-hearted rebellion to accomplish a far greater good. What was it? Back to the text. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That most of all, His praise and His glory would be known in all creation. Because get this then, despite our exalted view of ourselves, He is the greatest good in all creation. The greatest good for everything is more of God, to know more of God, to know what He's like, to then praise Him. This is why everything is here, exists, is being sustained by His power. This is why you're breathing right now, is to give Him glory. And it's not just you, but it's everything in all creation on this planet, in history. It all exists to exalt His name from my dog to all of the squirrels and bugs in my yard to the falcons that fly across my backyard to the stars and far-flung galaxies. They're not for me. They're for Him. And if anything, it's for us to marvel and go back to Him. And so then we as the redeemed, if we're doing our job, what are we doing? We're talking to all creation to say, look at this marvelous God. But you see, even then in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God is still just. He's still righteous. Why? Because in the first place, God was not obligated to give mercy. Pharaoh didn't deserve it. But then two, God accomplished a far greater good and righteous thing, even through Pharaoh's stubborn heart, that his praise would be all over the earth. Finally, then, while we know our salvation is sure, and again, I noted, we will only have to glance at this reason, but our salvation is sure because our salvation rests on God's right, His authority, not our reasonings. That is, as Paul deals with this question, is God righteous, and he gives us an answer, does it answer every question? Does it answer every objection to God's sovereign control? Well, evidently, it doesn't because he asks another one. He anticipates what we're going to say. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist His will? Again, it's the same question, God, I don't know how this works, that you can be in total control of salvation, and yet we're held responsible for our sins. I don't see how this works. Give me an answer, Paul. And he does. He gives us an answer. But actually, to clarify, he gives us a response. And it's not an answer, then, that will satisfy many of man's reasonings. How can God blame anyone? And how can he hold them accountable? Here's Paul's reply. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, what does Paul tell you? It's probably best right now, you just put your hand right over your mouth. He actually turns the question back to us. Why do you think you can question God? Actually, as His creatures, rebellious ones at that, the point is, we have no right to question Him. But Paul leverages this or proves it in this example of the potter at the potter's wheel. You know, spinning these clay pots that he's forming on the wheel. Look in the middle of verse 20. 
Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Again, the question's ridiculous, right? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Note, verse 21, here is the key term. Has the potter no right, no authority? Oh, he has all the rights. He has all the authority. Not you. Not me. He doesn't owe you an explanation as much as you might want it. You're His creation. In other words, He's God and we're not. In this way, I think it parallels very much God's interactions with Job. Remember those? Remember Job was having a pretty tough time. Life was going pretty stinky for him. And through his meditations as you work through the book, he keeps saying, but if I could appear before God and we could go to court, I have this case. And then God answers Job, so to speak. But how does he answer Job? With a whole lot of questions. Question after question, exposing one after the other, Job, what do you really know? Job, you have no idea what you're talking about. Job, you are not God. Job, you are finite. Job, you are small. Rick, your understanding is woefully limited, let alone very skewed. How can we go and question God? For Job, any of us, we have no right to question Him, to judge Him. Why? Because we are His creation, number one. And then two, we just don't have the wisdom. We're far too small and limited. Another way to say it, as my friend likes to say it, the answer, it's too big to fit between your ears because you're finite and he's not. Are you surprised that an infinite God in the mystery of his will has left things that you cannot comprehend? Is it any wonder, in back into Romans, at the end of the discussion through Romans 9 through 11, what does Paul say? Here he goes. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. The idea of inscrutable, untraceable, that you could follow it and keep trying to follow and find the end and you never can. Why? Because he's infinite and you are not. He is God and you are not. Perhaps the wisest thing to do at that point is to cover our mouth unless we're just going to humble ourselves in praise. And so then we're left with all of our questions here, maybe. Even some from Exodus about God's sovereignty and salvation, our responsibility for our sins and our wrongs. Is God sovereign then, as we come to the conclusion on that? Is God sovereign? Or is man responsible? And the answer we have discovered is what? Yes. How does that work? Here's Paul's answer in the end. He is God and you are not. In other words, you're going to have to trust Him. You're going to have to reckon with this truth that there is something mysterious with God beyond your full comprehension. But cannot God even through the worst of situations, the hardest of hearts, the worst of intentions, ordain and accomplish incredible, glorious, and dare I say, merciful things? 
And if we wonder about that, where do we go back? Right back to the cross. What do we see in the cross? You see, the greatest injustice of all of history, the one innocent one who was beaten, condemned, crucified, dead, buried, didn't deserve any of that, and yet it was all by the intentional plan of God before creation. As Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, he says this, This Jesus delivered up that is to be killed according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus you Jewish leaders crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless evil men are doing horrible things. And yet it was all by the purpose and ordination of God. Why? To accomplish a greater good that could never be imagined. That sinners would be shown mercy by an almighty God through Christ. That there was a far greater plan. And so to that, we might want to say, I don't know if I want to entrust that to God. I don't know about this. That's a lot to be responsible for. No, when we see who He is, when we go to the cross and see His mercy to those who don't deserve, we want to give Him everything and trust it all to Him. Can we not still trust Him? Can we not still see that He is far merciful than we can imagine? As the redeemed, we have all reason to praise Him. And so as we step back and just think through some kind of quick hit implications of of this truth, I want to leave you with really three things first. Especially to clarify, and these are heavy, weighty matters we've been dealing with. You hear all this talk about God's in control of salvation, and maybe some of you are wondering, and you're fearful now, well, am I one of the chosen? Maybe I'm not one of the chosen. I want to be, I want to be saved, but I don't know. I got all these uncertainties, and I'm just going to have to say at this point, just calm down for a second, take a deep breath, take a step back. Let me assure you of this. The Scriptures don't talk like that. Here's how the Scriptures talk. The question isn't that you need to be asking, am I chosen? The question you need to be asking is, do you believe in Christ? Because if you will come and believe in Him, know this, Christ will have you. All of your doubts notwithstanding, come to Him, He will save you. So don't ask, don't worry, am I chosen or not? Believe upon Jesus who receives sinners. Second, and this is for all the believers in here, We need to be humbled by this text. In such a way, be humbled in this way. You are in no way better than anyone else. You have no thing to hang your hat on about why God is merciful to you. And if that is true, just very practically then, should we ever be bitter toward another person? Should we ever be holding grudges? We don't want to... Be merciful. Why? Because we go, they don't deserve it. And then we have to look at a mirror and say, what did I deserve? Finally then, just as we are humbled and we see that salvation was taken out of our hands, this is where we rest because salvation is in His. So the third assurance is that. It's just our assurance in Christ. Brothers and sisters, Your salvation rests in a hand that is pierced for you. He will not let you go. Let's praise Him for that.